Well, good morning. It is great to be with you guys again. I'm so uh, excited to have the opportunity to share the word of God with you. Thank you, uh, Pastor Shagri, for the invitation. And my, uh, you guys have grown since the last time I've been here. So that's a wonderful thing to see that the, what the Lord is doing here. Excited for you guys. So listen, we're going to be looking at John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at six, verse, six verses in John chapter 14. And so uh, before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll dive into what God has for us this morning. Uh, Father, um, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to share with your people, Lord. Uh, this is a great privilege to get to worship you by opening up the scriptures and letting them speak to us and minister to us and preaching the unsearchable riches of your word. And so as we open up the Bible, Lord God, we pray that uh, the realities of heaven may become uh, deeply embedded in our hearts, Lord God, and that our lives might be enriched, encouraged, changed, challenged, and empowered. Lord, I pray that you would remove distractions and anything that would get in the way with of what you want to say to us, Lord God, and help us, Lord, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of St. John, in John chapter 13, Jesus is informing the disciples that he is going to go away that he's actually alluding to the fact that he is going to be crucified, that he's going to the cross, that he's going to die and then rise from the dead. And so in John chapter 14, Jesus knows that their heart is troubled, but at the same time, he knows that their hearts will be troubled because he knows that when he is arrested, they're going to forsake him and that when he is uh, when he is when he's crucified and he dies on the cross, that their hearts will be prone to be troubled. Uh, about six years ago, I started developing some pain in my abdomen. So I go to the doctor and I start explaining to the doctors the symptoms that I have. And they run a series of tests. They run an endoscopy. And so they put me under general anesthesia. And so when I wake up, I am a little bit woozy. And the doctor's talking to me and saying, you're fine. Other than having a little bit of extra liquid and digesting, so you're fine. And so, okay, so we're going to have a colonoscopy. And so um, they do that and they put me to sleep again. And I wake up and they tell me, you're fine. And Okay, but my stomach is still hurting. And so the doctor prescribes me these medications, and she says, I want you to take these medications. I said, I don't understand. Uh, you're saying that I'm fine, but you're prescribing me these medications. She says, I'm prescribing you these medications for a condition that you might have. The medical term is called prophylaxis. So, in the same way, Jesus, although he knows that the disciples are troubled right now, he is giving them encouragement prophylaxis for the discouragement that they will have when he is killed and when he, they, they disperse and all the things happen to him. And so, in this chapter, he means to encourage the disciples, and we'll see how he does it as we uh, explore these verses. We see here that Jesus is not only uh, ministering to a need, but he is also being proactive and not reactive. He is both 
encouraging them and preparing them. And so as we dive into this text, let's see how he does that. In verse 1 we read, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I'd like to make a few observations from this verse. Number one, Jesus is instructing his disciples not to be anxious. He's instructing them not to be troubled, not to be disconcerted, not to be discouraged because of the things that he has just said to him. Now, Jesus knows that they are prone to distracting emotions. Oh, in the same way, our hearts are prone to become troubled. We become anxious. We worry. We fret. We become troubled. We become discouraged. And at, at times, it works, to be honest, at times we are prone to become a little depressed. There are times that even, even when our hearts become overwhelmed, our hearts can become overwhelmed with our marital relationships between, with our wives or our husbands. Our, our hearts can become overwhelmed with finances. Our hearts can become overwhelmed with our health. I suspect this is why Dave, David, the psalmist in Psalm 62, verse 1, he says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. By Jesus saying, do not let, he is implying that they have the power to not let their hearts be troubled. The prepositional phrase in the Greek creates an absolute denial. Therefore, this is not only an encouragement, it is a command that we are not to let our hearts be troubled. And anytime God commands us to do something, he also gives us the power to carry it out. The power for obeying God's word is inherent within the command of God's word. Let me say that a little bit differently. His calling is his enablement. When God calls us to do something, he also enables us to do it. So when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he is also saying that they are the custodians of their hearts, which brings us to number one. We are responsible for guarding our hearts. It's not that we don't have emotions. It's that we want to make sure that our emotions don't have us. One of my favorite proverbs, and you're going to hear me say that a lot because I just love the word of God in its totality. I always have a favorite verse. It depends on which day you catch me. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The word keep is the Hebrew word natsir. It literally means 
to guard or to protect. And we are to guard and protect our hearts. Something similar to what Jesus is saying. Don't let your heart guard it, protect it. You are the custodian of your heart. You are the custodian of your emotions. We live in a culture where people uh, say things like, follow your heart. Follow your truth. Follow your instincts. Follow your passions. Yet the Bible has something completely different to say about the way we should view our human hearts. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, the word of the Lord says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slanders. Our hearts have the capacity to deceive us into being manipulated by our emotions. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says it this way, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. And so I often, as I'm talking to people, I says, why would I follow the advice? Why would I follow the counsel? Why would I follow the encouragement to some, from someone who is deceitful and desperately wicked like my heart. We cannot afford to follow the counsel of our own heart. Our hearts will deceive us into believing lies about life. Our hearts will deceive us into believing lies about God. Our hearts will deceive us into believing lies about God. C.H. Spurgeon, the great, great prince of preachers, once said, there is nothing so deluded as feelings. Christians cannot live by feelings. Let me further tell you that many feelings are the work of Satan, for they are not right feelings. And what right have you to set up your feelings against God's word? End quote. One of the lies our hearts can tell us is that we are powerless to obey God's word. When we are experiencing troubling feelings, our heart is prone to lie. You just can't do it. It is sad to say that many people live their lives enslaved by their emotions. Too many times our emotions can dictate what we believe, and as a result, our emotions will dictate how we act. Nevertheless, we are called to instruct our emotions to obey our beliefs, and as a result, act on our biblical beliefs despite our emotions. When we fail to do that, we will allow ourselves to react based on emotion, and by doing this, we will allow our emotions to sabotage our biblical beliefs. 
This may be a difficult truth to deal with, but many people live their lives as though they were the victims of their emotions. I never forget about a month ago, um, uh, Coastal is uh, gracious enough as as a church, and most Fridays we are off. And so uh, this on a particular Friday, I'm sitting at home, and we get a phone call from uh, York County Transportation. And so they inform us that my oldest son, Christian, was 16-year-old, and Christian has been diagnosed with autism and cerebral palsy, so actually comes to a school here in Chesapeake. And so uh, they've informed me that Christian has taken uh, a large dose of Zoloft. Uh, The medications were in his bag to be transported and given to the school nurse. And so, mind you, while he is on the school bus, he has an aide with him. He is strapped in a harness to his seat. And he's not to have access to his bag. And so, as I am driving to the hospital in Chesapeake, I am having all kinds of emotions. Ranging from anger to confusing to frustration to fear. And so I call my wife as I am stuck in traffic. Let me tell you something. There are two things. One of the things that I despise most is to be stuck in traffic. And for those of us who have to access 64 on a regular basis, they said... Oh, somebody see, y'all live on this side of the water. Well, God bless you. <laughs> but those of us who live on the other side and have to access 64, we usually try to be on that side by 1 o'clock. Because they're not, we will be in a parking lot called 64. And so I am in this parking lot called 64 and stuck in traffic, and I don't know if I'm going to make it to the hospital In time, so I call my wife because I don't want to be agitated. I don't want to be frustrated. I don't want to treat the nurses and the doctors unkindly. But I am experiencing all these things. And yet I know as a follower of Christ, as someone who is submitted to the gospel, I am still commanded, even under troubling emotions, to be obedient to God's word. So my wife prays with me, and thank God my son, he had some reactions, but he was fine. So when I'm sharing these things with you, I'm saying that we can manage our emotions in a biblical, godly way. When we say that we can't, that is an illusion. We most definitely can manage our emotions in a way that glorifies God. And when we do, and we can do this by having faith in God. We must trust that God can give us the strength to live out our faith and overcome our anxieties and overcome our fears and overcome the depressing thoughts. Jesus said it this way, believe in God also believe in me. When we believe in God by trusting Christ, we are believing that Christ is the son of the living God. We are believing that God can and will help us. Let's, so Jesus is encouraging the disciples because he's giving them troubling news. 
and he knows that there will be trouble. And let's look at verse 2 to see how he continues to do that. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus says in his father's house there are many rooms, he is alluding to this uh, verse where in the King James Version it says, in my father's house there are many mansions. And the, uh, the idea here is not a social construct of different categories. The idea here is not a distinction of class like middle class, upper class, or lower class, the idea here is that he is going before the disciples to prepare the way. He is going to prepare the way by rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. He is going to prepare a place for them, which brings us to number two. So they now can be assured that number two, heaven is real. For the disciples, for the followers of Christ, Heaven is real. Oh, I have to ask you this morning, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you just a fan? Now, when it comes to heaven, people have many questions. Like, do dogs go to heaven? Will I have the same body when I go to heaven? Will I be tall or short? Will I be slender in heaven? Will I be muscular in heaven? Will I be old in heaven? Or will I be young? These are all interesting questions, yet the Bible is silent about this. And it's always a good policy to observe this rule of thumb. Where the Bible is silent, we are also silent. I like the way Pastor Sean says it. Pastor Sean usually says, we let the passages that are clear shed light on the passages that are less clear. So here are some things that we can know about heaven. We know that in heaven there is fullness of joy. Psalm, Psalm 16 verse 11, in my presence there is fullness of joy. We know that in heaven there are pleasures at the right hand of the Father, and at my right hand pleasures forevermore. We know that in heaven there are riches of wisdom, Romans eleven thirty three, And we will spend eternity knowing him and enjoying him and glorifying him, and yet in our knowing him, we will never be able to fully know him because he is a great God and he is internal, eternal and way beyond what we can ask or even think. We also know about heaven that we will receive new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. And one of my favorite verses about heaven or about eternity is in Revelation 21, verse 4, where it reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor any crying, nor pain anymore, for the formal things have passed away. 
we also know that heaven is forever. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We also know that heaven is where Jesus is. These are just some of the things that the Bible tells us about heaven. Now, one of the awesome things about this passage that we're looking at today is Jesus assures them that they will be with him in heaven, which brings us to A. Christ promises his disciples would be with him in heaven. Now, these disciples have been with Jesus for the better part of three years, and they have enjoyed being with Jesus. And so he knows he's about to leave, and so they, he promises them that they will be with him. In the same way that these disciples enjoyed being with Jesus, they desired being with Jesus. We, too, should enjoy being with Jesus. David said it this way in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. John Piper once said, and I quote, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy, even if Christ were not there, will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted to the gospel. I think John Piper's very poignant quote here prompts a question. Our passions, why aren't our passions more heavenward? Why are we consumed with this life? And when I say that I'm speaking more to me, I sometimes suffer with the same affliction and ask myself the question, why am I so enamored with this life and don't want to spend more time with God? I become more consumed with earthly pleasures and temporary things, and I have to cry out to God, God, change my heart, change my desires, change my perspective, and let the realities of heaven become more weighty in my life than anything else in my life. And when Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, he talks to them about heaven, he talks to them about a place that he is preparing for them, he is telling them to lift up their eyes and let the reality of eternity and the reality of heaven be far above anything they can experience here on earth. Let's read the last few passages and then we'll close. And you know the way and you know where I am going, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus reminds them that they know where he is going. He has been telling them that he is going back to the Father. He has been saying to them for the better part of three years that he's going to die and be raised from the dead and that he would go back to the Father. Thomas, who more than likely represents the opinion of some of the other disciples, said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know where you're going? And Jesus responds by saying that he is the way, which brings us to number three. The way is more than a path, which brings us to A. Jesus is the way. The way is a person. I love this verse because it teaches us about the exclusivity of eternal life. It tells us that Jesus is the only way. He is not a way out of many ways. He is the only way. It's sad that many people uh, relate to Jesus and they just add Jesus to their shopping cart. It's almost like shopping in Amazon. So get my little Jesus and add it to my cart. And so they take Jesus and they add it on top of all their other beliefs ancestral worship, Buddhism, spiritualism. And Jesus here saying, I am the only way. When Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2, he's speaking about Christ rising again from the dead. He says, and there is no salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he says something different. He says it this way. He said, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to salvation. The only way we can inherit eternal life is through Christ. When we come to a place that we recognize that we are sinners and need of a Savior, that we were born in sin, the scriptures say that we were by nature children of wrath and so God sent his only son Jesus was God in the flesh and he lived a perfect life because God's standard for us is not that we are good it's not that we're a good person it's not that we pay our taxes our God's standard for us is that we are perfect and this is why he sent his perfect son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and he was buried and placed in the tomb and rose again from the dead on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life and to state in fact that he was God in the flesh and it is only through him that we have eternal life have you received Christ today because now when we repent of our sins when we receive Christ and we believe the core truths of the gospel the Bible says that we are saved this is why it also says in verse, in, in, which brings us to verse number four, the way is a journey we take totally dependent and empowered by Christ. He not only says that he is the way, he says he is the truth and he is the life. When it says he is the way, he's not only talking about a road we travel, he's talking about the way is a person that we have relationship with. 
It is a person that we depend upon. The scripture says separated from him we can do nothing. The scripture said that in him we live and move and have our being. And we need to, as we embrace this way, as we have been converted, as we have been transformed, we learn how to be dependent upon him to walk out this life, which finally brings us to number five. The way is a way of truth and life. Jesus says he is the truth and the life. He not only makes the way exclusive, but he also claims that he is absolute truth. He is not only the truth, but he is the source of truth. He excludes the possibility for any other way to truth and life. Everything that is true and right emanates from him. Jesus is the only way to truth and life. In order to have true, abundant life, we must be lovers of truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6 says this, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Sometimes people only want to hear about love. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says that they're rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head. We are not only to love truth, we are to speak truth. There are times when people like to speak truth. They're okay with speaking truth, but we have a hard time hearing truth. Do you have a hard time hearing truth? Especially when the truth is said about you. Many people love Jesus, but they don't love truth. As long as he doesn't ask me to change my thinking, as long as he doesn't, as I can add him on top of all the other things I believe. One of the things I love about Coastal is that we at Coastal, we are about the truth. We are about the gospel. And we have a, a thing in our core values, we call it WALA. And WALA stands for watchfulness. We guard and we watch the gospel, the truth, in our own lives and in the lives of others. We are authentic. We are real with each other. We are honest with each other and with God. And we operate in love. We always ask ourselves, what is the most loving thing that we can do? And finally, we are accountable. And that's how we develop authentic followers of Christ. That's how we at Coastal endeavor to walk out the truth of the gospel. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. If, you're, if you are here today, maybe you've been listening to me preach the gospel today. Maybe you've been pre, pre, 
heard me preaching today about having a troubled heart or about anxiety. Because there are many things in this life that can distract us from the gospel. They distract us from the things that God has called us to do, which is to glorify him in everything that we do. There'll be some people up front to pray with you about these things. I want, would you stand to your feet with me? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word today. I want to thank you because your word is true. And so, Lord, as we have been speaking your word today, help us to be people who walk in truth. Help us to be people, Lord, who do not allow our hearts to be troubled at every circumstance, at every situation. Help us to guard and manage our hearts in a way that glorify you. Lord, if there's anyone in this place who does not know you, if there's anyone in this place, Lord, who has not surrendered their life to you, who has not been converted, I pray that even as we are praying right now, that you would save them, that you would do a work in their hearts. And so we pray that as a result, Lord God, our perspectives of heaven and our perspectives of the reality of heaven might inform our everyday lives and that we would be reminded, Lord, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal joy in Jesus' name.